and welcome to the AK-47 podcast, 47 selections from the works of Alexandra Kolontai. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I am going to continue reading The Loves of Three Generations by Alexandra Kolontai. It's a short story that I started reading two episodes ago, and we are just going to jump right in. If you remember from the last episode, the protagonist in this story is presumably Kolontai herself, who has received a letter from a colleague named Olga Sergeyevna, who is telling her her life story. And this colleague, Olga, has just explained that she had a husband, Konstantin, who was away imprisoned uh, or exiled in Siberia, and she had a lover, uh, basically the man that she was working for, named M. And she came clean and told Konstantin about this lover, and it turns out that uh, Konstantin forgave her and completely understood. So I'm just going to jump right into where we left off last time. And indeed, Constantine did finally understand. Far away from me in his place of exile, he lived through all my anxieties, my conflicting emotions, and came to accept me as I was. He resigned himself to the inevitable and managed to assert his claims on that part of me which still reached out to him and could not live without him. As far as I was concerned, the matter had been partially resolved. But my mother was still waiting for some decision to be made. She found it galling that I should receive letters from M, in her name, as well as letters from Constantine, and that both made me happy. It was at this point that she began to tell me about her own crisis of the heart, to try and force me to make some decision. She was distressed by what she saw as my cowardice and lack of willpower. In every other way you are so strong, so persistent and fearless. I simply cannot understand why love should make you so cowardly. I wonder if you inherited that from your father, my mother mused aloud. She just could not accept that a decision had already been made. Everything had been brought out into the open and we were all trying to accept each other as we were. So what about M's wife then? Are you going to tell her everything too and make her accept the situation too? No, I'm afraid that she doesn't really come into this, and we can't tell her anything. But you see, M has never been at all emotionally close to her. He loved her, and still does, as he would some fragile toy, and his love for me has robbed her of nothing. At this, my mother lost her temper and told me that we were nothing but crass Philistines and that these four-way marriages might well flourish in ultra-decadent Paris, but that sooner or later I was going to have to choose. In the spring, my baby was born, a little girl. M came to stay with us, and those few weeks in mother's house were possibly the happiest of my life. It was strange the way that Mother and M immediately established a much warmer relationship than had ever existed between her and Constantine. By the time M had left, my mother had decided quite positively that the choice was obvious. I had to stay with the father of my child. But strangely enough, the more Mother took M's side, the more sharply I became aware of how deeply lonely I was without Constantine. It was as if my mother and M were in one camp and Constantine and I were in the other. I suppose that ideologically this was indeed the case. My mother, the humanitarian and populist, was on the same side as the representative of the liberal bourgeoisie, while Constantine and I were in the camp of the proletariat. 
Then another arrest and another period of exile effectively postponed the whole issue. My little girl lived with her grandmother, and I continued to write both to M and Constantine, until eventually Constantine and I had the good fortune to meet each other in exile. To my mother's horror, we started living with each other again, and we did so without dramatics or scenes of forgiveness. We lived with each other quite naturally and happily, as two people who are emotionally at one with each other. It was then that my mother, in her heart of hearts, began to reject me, writing me letters filled with reproaches, sadness, and the most profound resentment, taking M's side, saying that I was destroying the man I loved out of a sense of mere compassion. M, for his part, delivered several ultimatums to me and then abruptly broke off all relations, and I remained with Constantine. The springtime of liberalism came around. We returned from exile, and fate once more brought me to St. Petersburg. A meeting with M was inevitable, and I will not conceal from you the fact that I greatly desired and actively sought such a meeting. When we did meet, it was as if we had never parted. Everything started again. All the agony, all the joy, all the doubts, our feelings of mutual isolation and the power of our mutual attraction. But I feared the power of our feelings all the more now that M, carried away by this renewed outburst of passion, was prepared to leave his wife, insisting that we make public our liaison and get married. More than ever before, I felt how emotionally alien we were from each other. The political struggle was flaring up and the parties were now more sharply divided than ever, clearly defining their positions. What had been a merely theoretical argument three years ago now became a vital platform for action. M had not even progressed as far as a liberationist precision, and we were literally speaking different languages. I despised myself every time we met and pined desperately when we were apart, while M hated my work, despised the Bolsheviks, and longed to possess me forever and always. I loathed the petite bourgeois in him, attacked him for his bourgeois liberalism, but lacked the strength to tear him from my heart. There was something strangely maternal about my feelings for him at that time. I was sorry for him. I always felt that he was maligning himself, that I had to help him understand himself, and that I could not just abandon him at the political crossroads. This agony went on for several months until unexpectedly Constantine arrived. This time my confession caused him great pain and his feelings of jealousy were only too evident. Nevertheless, we started living together as friends. This was more than M could endure and he flew into a towering rage, refusing to believe that we weren't sleeping together, demanding that I leave Constantine and all but leaving his wife himself. In short, every day brought some new painful incident. Eventually something absolutely absurd occurred. M burst into our flat, yelling obscenities at Constantine and demanding that I leave him there and then, otherwise everything would be over between us. I didn't go. We parted as enemies. Constantine and I had an unbearably difficult time after that. He saw that I was unhappy because of his own jealous feelings, but he was unable to help me. For the first and only time in my life, although at the moment I'm experiencing something rather similar, I could not devote my, myself to my work. Everything was submerged beneath my unhappiness. At this point, my mother arrived, summoned by M's despairing letters. 
She came with my daughter and with her own uncompromising demand that I stop prevaricating and come to a decision. But I made up my mind long ago, mother, I protested. Well, in that case, stop living with him then. She meant Constantine. You say that you are no longer his wife, and I believe you. But why all the pretense? Why are you torturing M like this? No, mother, you're wrong. I'm going to stay with Constantine. But she just closed her ears to this. She knew from M's letters of the events of the past months, and I had written to her too, describing my hesitations and anxieties. You love M, she repeated stubbornly, and love has its own laws. You're just cluttering them up with a lot of idiotic intellectual logic. You mustn't break your heart. You must be courageous in your love and break down all obstacles, even your political differences with him. You can make a Marxist out of M. He loves you so much that he'd do anything for you. And besides, you're much stronger than he is. But mother's advice only had the opposite effect on me. And I now felt even more acutely that I must not and could not join my life with M's. I knew now that this would mean utter spiritual bankruptcy. Mother arranged a meeting with M and tried to reconcile us in the presence of our child, but with all the hypocrisy and misery of this meeting, it came to nothing. Then 1905 was upon us, that historic year, and the events swept everybody up so inexorably that people's private lives retreated into insignificance. My petty griefs were submerged in the ocean of historical events as the revolution raged about us. I left for South Russia, Constantine went abroad, and Mother hurried off to her estate in the provinces. M stayed on to lead one of the liberal unions. We worked and hoped, we fretted and argued, we struggled. And then the reaction set in, once more leaving us with no time to think about ourselves. In the autumn of 1908, I met M again, quite by chance, in a godforsaken little factory town. The post-1905 reaction had intensified, and the revolution was now crushed. M had put aside all his temporary radicalism of 1905 and had speedily risen in the world of industrial finance. He had become an important person, whose arrival in any town would be noted in the provincial newspapers. I knew he was in the same town, and the knowledge troubled me, as it had done in the old days, and prevented me from getting on with my work. I avoided him and did not want another meeting with him. But then the police got on to me. My friends warned me that I should get away immediately and find some safe refuge, if only until morning, not so much for myself personally as for the papers which I had on me and which I didn't want to destroy. A cunning idea occurred to me. Why should I not go to M's place? I would certainly be in no danger in his factory flat, where he was living as a guest of honor. And so I went to him. A footman announced my arrival. I used my old surname, and M came out. He looked genuinely pleased to see me. But when we were alone and I had told him my reason for coming, he was visibly shaken. His look now changed to one of obvious hostility and lost all traces of his old affection for me. As we stood looking at each other, like two complete strangers, both of us must have been wondering in amazement how it was that we had once loved each other so passionately, suffered so intensely, nearly died without each other. I felt that this was some distant relative of M standing in front of me and not M himself. 
In his appearance, there was some remote resemblance to the man I had once loved, but in general, he now appeared to me as some totally uninteresting stranger. I bitterly regretted having come, but I decided to go through with it for the sake of the documents, however much my bourgeois self cursed and shrunk from the task. He could be useful to me, and besides, it might make him lose a bit of weight. He, for his part, gave me courteously to understand how exceedingly inconvenient my presence there was for him, whilst I pretended not to understand what he was talking about, and even invoked the rights of our old friendship. So he was left with no alternative but to let me stay the night. My God, I can well imagine how badly M slept that night. I slept excellently, however, utterly unaffected by the knowledge that sleeping, or more likely not sleeping, two rooms from mine was the man whose footsteps, whose laughter, whose fleeting glances had never failed in the past to induce in me a burning wave of passion whose presence I had always sensed, even from the other end of the house. It was that night that I finally realized that our love was dead and buried. All that was left behind was emptiness and our little girl, about whom M had not even asked. Next day, we took leave of each other coldly, without expressing any desire to see each other again. The past was buried and forgotten. But the curious and incomprehensible thing was that shortly afterwards I met Constantine, whom I had not seen for a very long time. We had been working in different parts of Russia. And do you know, I suddenly felt quite extraordinarily remote from him too, and began to regard him in a totally new light. It was as though everything we had experienced in those hectic years of the first revolution had left its mark and had completely obliterated all traces of our old familiar selves. We now disagreed in our interpretation of events, our approach to the tasks of the moment, and we differed even in our vision of the future. Constantine had a difficult time and had fallen out with the party. There had been troubles of a semi-personal, semi-political nature, which had left marks of bitterness and pessimism. He no longer argued with his old passionate faith in the revolution, and was convinced that for many years to come, there would be an inevitable period of stagnation. With a passion colored by his own feelings of personal resentment, he pointed out all our mistakes. He had now adopted a position of cautious watchfulness, and both his words and gestures were those of a man grown weary in battle, who, without admitting it to himself, was unconsciously withdrawing from the political movement to find himself some calm refuge. I, on the other hand, was filled with renewed energy, for unlike him, I had been stirred and inspired by the revolution. I felt I had matured emotionally and had grown stronger, and that now I would truly be able to work to the limits of my ability. Though Constantine and I were affectionate when we met, and we planned to work together once more, it was not long before I realized how fundamentally estranged and remote we had become. When the opportunity presented itself to me to go abroad, illegally of course, I resolved to go to pursue my chemistry studies, which had been interrupted by party work. I never met Constantine again, and he gradually moved away from us altogether. When the war broke out, he became a defensist and worked as a teacher in a secondary school. He actively sabotaged the power of the Soviets, and as far as I know, he died while participating in one of the White Guard conspiracies. 
M managed to leave the country just in time to avoid the punishing hand of the proletariat. But for me, both these men had been long dead by that time, and their fates no longer much concerned me. But you must be wondering, as you read this unconscionably long autobiography of mine, where on earth the crisis is in all this. These are all past experiences long buried in oblivion. What exactly is her problem, you must be thinking. I felt that if you were to understand my present unhappiness, you ought to know a little about what sort of person I was. My story should show you, if nothing else, that my female instincts are no less strong than anyone else's, and that I do have some understanding of the complexities of the human heart. But for all my tolerance, I am utterly unable to deal with the situation which has arisen with my daughter. As I mentioned before, I occasionally console myself with the thought that, just as my mother was unable to understand me, so I do not understand Genya. But in general, the whole business strikes me as so fundamentally trite and prurient that I just sink into a complete state of lethargy. Please help me to make some sense of it, even be critical of me if necessary. For the problem may simply be that I am behind the times, and the new style of our lives has bred a new psychology which is unfamiliar to me. I cannot write you any more today. If you don't mind, I think I'll come and see you. Now that you know something of my past, I shall more easily be able to describe the problem simply and concisely. Will you ring me and tell me when you'll be on your own? Late evenings are best for me. I shall await your call. Comradely greetings to you. Best, Olga Sergeyevna. Okay, so I think I'm going to stop right there for this episode, and we will dive directly into part four of this story in the next episode. Until then, this is Kristen Godsey with the AK-47 podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and keep up the good fight.